Church family, as we continue a celebration of the faithfulness of God, we believe His faithfulness is displayed in no better place than the truth of His Word. So let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word, and I want you to find the chapter of the book of Jeremiah that contains, no doubt, the most famous verse in the book of Jeremiah. And of course, I'm referring to Jeremiah chapter 29, and this morning we're going to preach most of the chapter but we're also going to dwell on that most famous verse. If you're a guest of ours, about a year ago, 29 chapters ago, we began journeying through the book of Jeremiah, verse by verse. It has been a prophetic word, a good word for our church. It's been used of God in a tremendous way in people's lives, and I'm truly grateful for that, and it proves our confidence, not in a personality or a program, but in the preaching of God's Word. But there are certain days where the chapter that I'm to deal with, the text according to the plan, and the season of life that we find ourselves in, on top of where we are as a church, line up so beautifully that I have to chuckle in my study when I think about God's provision and, well, as we'll see in a few moments, His plan. Many of you have learned a lot about the book of Jeremiah. Some of you are like, Pastor, we've learned more than we ever wanted to know about Jeremiah. We're tired of learning about Jeremiah. Could we pick another book to learn about? And we will when we finish Jeremiah. But before that, before I ever began Jeremiah chapter 1, I guarantee you, if you did not have this verse memorized, you have read this verse, you have seen this verse, you have encountered this verse. And of course, the verse I'm speaking about is Jeremiah 29, 11. It is no doubt the most famous verse of the Bible. Now this morning, if you are using a smartphone, I hope it's open to a Bible app and you're paying attention to Jeremiah 29, so please don't do what I'm going to tell you that I did. But if you were to go to Google and you were to Google Jeremiah 29, 11, you can see it with mountains in the background. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. If mountains are your thing, you can see it with a beach in the background. For I know the plans I have for you. Have you ever noticed that it's always the beach or the mountains? No one has ever taken a picture of a landfill and put Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. This is where we want to be. For some of you, it might be a bridge to some deserted island where you and you alone can be there. When I see a bridge like that, I think about what jig I'd like to drop down that pile on and see what fish is laying there. But you can see it on a bridge. You can see it on a graduation invitation. Oftentimes, I'll get those, for I know the plans I have for you. If you are all about this verse... You can literally go online today, and for $29 and some change, you can order a Jeremiah 29-11 hat. You sure can. You absolutely can. $29.99 for this hat. I guarantee you whoever's selling it is prospering with a future and a hope. If you're going to pay $29.99 for this hat. My point is this. There's no doubt that these words are inspiring. But I have some tough news for you. What if I told you that Jeremiah 29, 11 is not an individual promise to you that your dreams, your plans, your ideas, the vision of your life will become reality if you'll just be patient? Unfortunately, that's true. It's not any of those things. It's even better. It's even better. In fact, this is a beautiful example of when we do what we say we believe, 
interpret God's word in its context, we begin to recognize that a verse that is truly inspiring and meaningful, and nothing wrong with people enjoying Bible verses and memorizing them, but there's everything wrong with misapplying them because when you do, you miss God's true message in it. Do you know what this verse is really about? Well, it says it right at the beginning, for I know the plans. How many of you are a planner? Raise your hand if you're a planner. You like plans, right? And you're sitting beside somebody who's not a planner. In fact, one guy just pointed at the planner in his family. He's the planner. We're here, Pastor, because she planned this. I'm a planner. Now, I'm not a planner to the nth degree about things that may or may not be very important to me, but if it matters to me, I love to plan. I am a fan of a notes app called Evernote. I have an Evernote app, and I have my calendar on my phone. And some people veg out on their phone by checking social media posts or reading articles. I go back and forth between my to-do list and my calendar. Yeah, it's intense. That's what Laurel says. She says, you're intense. But I go back and forth because I make lists, lists of all kinds of things. I've got lists that are very personal in nature, maybe about some of my hobbies or things that I want to accomplish. I've got lists that are pastoral and ministerial. I've got lists about my kids' lives and things. And then I look at my calendar because I know anything that I say is important has to end up on my calendar or it's really not that important. If it matters, then there'll be a time in my life where I'm going to do this. Now, again, this has developed over years, and some of you are the same way. But all of us are familiar with plans. I can't tell you how many teachers in this room and in our church this week have posted those beautiful pictures of their classroom ready to go for my little angels. Wait till 3.30 on Friday. Then send a picture of that classroom. All my lesson plans work great till people get involved. It's like ministry. Everything I set at my desk and design and plan, I go, this is amazing. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is going to call me on this one. And then I get you involved, and it never goes exactly as I had envisioned. We make lesson plans, work plans. Some of you by Tuesday are making weekend plans. Weekend plans, vacation plans, trip plans. There are all kinds of plans in our life, and you know if you're a professional, if you're accomplished at what you do, whether you run a construction business or you work in corporate America, or as I had a little fun a few moments ago picking on you, you're teaching children, you're coaching a team, we all have to plan. And you know that old military corporate term, if you fail to plan or a failure to plan is a plan to fail. Most people don't even understand what that means. That actually doesn't mean that people who plan don't fail. It just means if you have a plan and you fail, at least you know what you did to fail so you don't have to repeat it. It's called systems and processes in the business world. And systems and processes have to be put into place if businesses want to grow their bottom line because to grow your bottom line, you have to grow your scale. To grow your scale, you have to know what systems and processes are worth repeating, which requires a plan. I've already lost some of you. You're like, what in the world did I walk into? Here's my point. Whether you kind of live with the flow, go with the flow, wake up every day and it's a new day, do what you want to, there's a few of you like that. If you stay that way, you're going to end up homeless. But whether you're not really involved in plans or you are a planner to the nth degree, all of us have had the experience of having our plans and God's plans not line up. Did you know that God is a planner? 
that God actually admits, confesses, proclaims in this passage that he is a planner. And when we begin to think about his plans, all of a sudden it changes the way we view our plans. You may have experienced the greatest summer of your life. Some of you, I know for a fact, one young lady in our first service, because I'm walking with her through a difficult situation, have experienced the most difficult week of your life. But whether you feel like you're on top or you're struggling, your ability to understand your plans in view of God's plan changes everything about your potential opportunities to move forward in confidence and effectiveness. Now, this is important. Context matters. Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, where Jeremiah lived his life in the capital city, Jerusalem, had been unfaithful to God, not for a year, not for a generation, but many generations. Some of you have been on this journey with me and you know, but I'm going to repeat it because it matters. Judah had strayed from God and committed the atrocity of idolatry. The very thing God said, I want. I want you to be me, my people, and I want to be your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The Lord your God is one. It is Ten Commandments 101, Levitical law, Deuteronomic law. There is only one God. Worship the Lord God, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses. Worship him. And they had not done that. And Jeremiah was called, as you know, to deliver God's message of repentance, but also that judgment had already been determined and that the discipline God was going to bring on Israel was none other than total destruction brought by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. However, it was never King Nebuchadnezzar's desire to burn Israel to the ground. Because if you are a conquering king, you don't want to destroy the cities you conquer. You would rather them function. So they generate tax revenue, which makes your empire more powerful. And so what happened was, when King Nebuchadnezzar first marched on Israel, he did not destroy Israel, he just began deporting its citizens. He wanted to take the Jews back to Babylonian territory, to Babylon, and indoctrinate them in the ways of his culture. This was a way to fight warfare without shedding blood. Israel is going to fall in 586 B.C. But about a decade before that, in 597, a group of Jews, a large group of Jews, are deported from Israel to Babylon. I'll tell you some famous names. Daniel. You know Daniel in the lion's den? He's one of the deportees. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember the fiery furnace? We won't bow down. You do what you do what you want to us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the deportees. So Jeremiah's in Jerusalem. There are deportees in Babylon. And he hears that in Babylon, some false prophets have started saying, hey guys, listen, j just hold on. We're going to be out of here in a couple years at most. Don't, don't make any plans. Don't, 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 don't start your life here. God's going to deliver us today. Today is our Jeremiah 29, 11 moment. They're handing it out on cards and bracelets and T-shirts. God's going to make us prosper. Jeremiah, who cares about all of God's people, the ones in Jerusalem, and the ones who've been deported, says, hold up. And he does something we're not used to seeing in the Old Testament. 
We know that God used letters because much of the New Testament are letters. The Apostle Paul wrote many letters. In fact, almost all of his books, all of them are really letters. Letter to the church at Philippi, letter to the church at Rome. John wrote letters to the churches when he received the revelation of Jesus, the book of Revelation. But in the Old Testament, letters were also powerful tools. They couldn't tweet, they couldn't post, there was no email. So when Jeremiah heard that some Jews in Babylon were thinking they were about to be delivered, he wrote a letter. I want to read that letter to you. It begins in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now notice how God's speaking in the first person. God sent them. You may have thought King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar took you, but I sent you because I have a plan. So this is the plan. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 5. Build houses. Lumber prices must have been better in Babylon than in Spartanburg. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But, listen to verse 7, seek the welfare of of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare for thus says the Lord the host of God of Israel do not do not let your prophets or your diviners or diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. I'll read one more verse. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Four truths about God's plans. I want you to write these down. Truth number one is pretty obvious. God's plans are often not our plans. If you were a Jewish young man, a Jewish man or woman who had been deported, you left mama, you left home, you left the neighborhood, you left temple worship, and you're living in Babylon, tell me what you would want the plan to be. I know what I would want. I would want somebody to come get me. We know we have men right now being deployed to Afghanistan. Two nights ago, overnight, they began deploying to Afghanistan. And what we've been communicated to as citizens of the United States through various news agencies is that these men, a part of our military service, are going in there to try to safely escort any American citizens and those who are allies to the American forces in Afghanistan out of the country as it crumbles under the weight of the Taliban. If I'm sitting in Afghanistan and I have been an interpreter for the United States, or I'm sitting in Afghanistan and I am a private citizen of the United States, a contractor or whatever, I cannot wait to see the boys from the 101st Airborne come get me. Come get me and take me home. This is what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and thousands of others must have been thinking. 
Now compound that with false prophets saying, hey, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Keep, keep a knapsack uh, packed. Be ready. Get ready. We're going back. God's going to deliver us. At most, it's a couple of years. You live differently when you're leaving somewhere. I have no intentions. But if I were, or you were, going to resign your job in the next month, you would work differently. If you have a good employer that you trust, you would go to him or her. Out of loyalty, you would offer to work a notice. You would begin to button things up, hand off information, try to collect files. If I were ever resigning one church to take another, the last month I would do things differently than if I were planning to stay indefinitely. We leave and lead and live differently when we know our time is numbered. Then Jerusalem catches word. Jeremiah sends a letter. He says, hold up. You're not going anywhere. Build houses. Get married. Have children and let your children get married and have children. He says specifically in the passage, do not decrease but multiply. In other words, you're never coming back because it's going to be 70 years before I allow you to return. Have you ever noticed that even your best plans often don't line up with God's plans? God's plans are different than our plans. Why? Because his ways are different than our ways. For the prophet Isaiah clarified that, didn't he not? He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God sees time differently we all want to make plans what the proverbial writers say the book of proverbs chapter 16 and then again in chapter 19 the heart of a man plans his way but the lord establishes his steps many are the plans in the mind of a man but it is the purpose of the lord that will stand so we know there's nothing wrong with planning we know god has given us a brain to plan but ultimately God's ways are not our ways. In Theology 101, you learn it this way. We see time the way you sit at a railroad crossing in Smartburg County and watch a train go by, one car at a time, because we live in a mountainous jungle. I'd never seen a train from start to finish till I went to Kansas. There are no trees out there, and it's flat. You can literally see a train from one end to the other. I'll never forget looking at it, just looking at a train from one end to the other. All my life, it is the lights are blinking, and here it comes. I sit there with my kids sometimes, and I act like I'm adding the numbers on the side of the cars together. As they go by, I'll be making up numbers. I'm like, Dad, you're so smart. i just be making up stuff, right? You've done something. You think you did something because you learned your sexes. Look what your daddy can do. I'll be adding the numbers together. I have no idea if I'm right. But it, And if you ever count, it's about 150 cars on a full train. And you saw it one car at a time. But God doesn't see trains that way. See, that's how we see time. I can't see tomorrow. It's gone. I can pull up the memories on my Facebook app, but I can't see tomorrow. I have plans for, or excuse me, yesterday. I have plans for tomorrow, but it has not yet come. So I can't relive yesterday, and I cannot see exactly what tomorrow will hold. I only see today, but God is like the one who sits above the train. 
He sees time from beginning to end. It's already sealed and determined in his mind while he operates within the constraints of time which he created when he placed the sun in the air and the moon and he created night and day. While he operates in the constraints of time, he is not bound by time. He is timeless. This is why for him it's not even a question of where you began he is before the beginning and after the end because there's never been a time he was not and there will never be a time where he will not be. He always is and he always will be and he is today. And so his plans obviously are going to look different because he sees the ultimate end of the story. Our plans and his plans are often not the same. And I'll tell you where this makes a difference doesn't make a difference when something God does was totally unexpected and blesses your heart. It makes a difference when you and I foolishly, sometimes sinfully, put all our hope in a plan we wanted. We baptized it in prayer, but it was really our plan, and then we watched it fall apart. It is at that moment that we have to ask the question, are these my plans or are these the Lord's? Think about the biblical characters you grew up learning about if you grew up in church. Abram, who became Abraham, he was doing pretty good in Ur. Went to Ur Elementary School, Ur Middle School, Ur High School, Ur Community College. Went down there to the Walmart in Ur. Had a life in Ur. God says, go. Where you want me to go, Lord? I'm not going to tell you. Just go. Moses, an unbelievable childhood, miraculously saved, raised in Pharaoh's household. Murders a man who's beating one of his fellow Israelites, runs in secret, rebuilds his life in the wilderness, marries, and is doing pretty well as a shepherd. God says no, and Moses would have been in his 80s when he saw the burning bush. God says no, I want you to go back. Jonah wasn't running from God initially. He was a preacher in Israel. God said no, I want you to go preach to Nineveh, and that whole thing got fishy. <laughs> Nehemiah, you got to stay away. You got to stay awake. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the king. Ended up having to go back and rebuild a wall. Mary, young Mary, beautiful young Mary, who we know was a righteous woman, not a sinless woman, not to be worshipped. She's a human like you and I. But Mary was living her life, had already been betrothed to Joseph, very much in love, wanting to start her life. And the angel Gabriel interrupts all of that. Now, we're thankful for his faithfulness, but that was not her plan. Peter was fishing. You ever had a fishing trip canceled? Peter was fishing, and Paul was not just a Pharisee. Paul was a really good Pharisee. Every person you've ever studied in Scripture, none of these are perfect, by the way. Every one of them had a completely different plan for their life than God. God's plans are often not our plans. Second, God's plans are his plans. I think this is important. Look at verse 11. I love this verse, but I love it mainly for the first sentence. We tend to focus on plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's good. That's rich. We'll get there. But you know in the original language, the emphatic word that's emphasized is this word, for I know the plans I have for you. They're my plans God says, if you want a certain level of confidence in your life, put your confidence in yourself or others. And for a reasonable amount of time, you'll find a certain source of strength. 
but you're going to fail, and others are going to fail you, and you're going to fail others. But if you want life-changing confidence, put your confidence in a God who says, I have a plan, I know the plan, and the plan is mine. I didn't get it from you. I didn't get it from anyone else. It's mine. Think about the anxiousness and the tension we're living in right now. One of the biggest debates that we're watching unfold politically, socially is, does our government or does big tech have the right to label something as good information, bad information, or misinformation? This is the great debate. At first, we were trying to address a pandemic, and we still are. It's affecting even our church today. But also, there is an even larger constitutional struggle of how far is too far for a federal or a state government to mandate individuals about the decisions they should make for their welfare and their health care. It's interesting because I've watched many people who have a, a lot of wisdom say, no, people have to make the best decision for their own health care. They're responsible for that. But we better make sure to get them the right information. And depending on which camp is throwing grenades at the other camp, they typically just label the other camp's information as misinformation, not a physician. I'm not here to instruct you about your personal health care. I am here to give you a simple application. The frustration is people want to know what the truth is, and they don't know who to believe. I don't have an answer for that today in our country with a pandemic, with a condition of leadership locally, state, federal. But I love the confidence that comes in knowing my God knows his plan. He knows his plan. He is not moved by anybody else's plan or opinion. And not only does he know his plan, he knows me and he lets me know him. You want to talk about confidence to navigate a world where we may not ever have all the answers. A hundred years from now, people that are living on this planet, if the Lord returns, doesn't return, will know far more about COVID-19 than we do because time is a gift in relationship to science, research, and medicine. So there are some answers to some questions I may never get. But when I feel that anxiousness and that tension building up in me, I'm always reminded, my God knows his plan. It's his plan. He knows it, and it involves me. It is his plan. But we know that his plan is, thirdly, always good and always for his glory. God's plans are good, they're for our good, and they're for our glory. Look at verse 11, the second phrase. He says in verse 29, chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Twice in this verse is the word you. It's an English pronoun. But you know the English pronoun you can mean you individually or you individually. But it can also mean you corporately. You Clemson people. You Carolina people. Right? You vax people. You anti-vax people. You Democrats you Republicans. There are all these groups that people get put in. 
And so we know the word can be plural and the word can be singular. It's plural here. You know why that matters? Because I started the sermon by telling you it's wrong to take Jeremiah 29 11, rip it out of its context and say this is God's personal promise to you to make all your dreams come true. That's not what it is. He's talking to his people, the people of God. And he's saying, I have a plan for you and I'm going to bring your welfare. I'm going to bring you a future and I'm going to bring you a hope. And you may not realize it because I've just told you through my prophet that for 70 years you're not going to return home. You may not realize it because I've just told you that you're going to walk through a dark and difficult time before you see the full restoration, and here's why. My plan, while I care about you individually, is for the redemption of the world. And to redeem the world to myself, I need a remnant of people from which I'm going to deliver a Savior. And you know what happens in this same passage? He begins to unpack how good his plans are for us. Have you had the experience of having plans crushed only to see in time that God's plan was better? Are you married to somebody you're madly in love with, but there was a time in your life when you were young, when you were dating somebody else you just had to marry, and now you look and you go, I'm so thankful she dumped me and I got you. I'm so thankful he broke my heart and I found you. I think about that every time I come home, not in relationship to my marriage, though I think I was Laurel's third choice, but not in relationship to my marriage. Many of you don't know our story, and today's not about our story, but Laurel and I have a failed adoption in our past. After our fourth child was born, we had always had a heart for adoption. It's one of the reasons we have our church so mobilized, and so many of you have rallied to the adoption cause. There are people in this room who have far more blood, sweat, and tears in adoption than Laurel and I do, but as a pastor, I believe in it. We support it. We're always going to be a pro-adoption church. There's some cool plans coming in the future about even being more positioned as a church where people can come to for resources for adoption and foster care. And one of the things that we felt led to do was to adopt a child, and we felt we felt good about choosing the country of Ethiopia. You probably have met many children in our community adopted from Ethiopia for many years. It was a place where a lot of orphans were and a lot of adoptions were made. And I praise God for that. We have some children in our church who were born in Ethiopia and they've been a part of our church family because of the gift of adoption. When we first entered the process, there was a long waiting list. That's fine. We waited. We had plenty to do. And we got to be number one. In other words, we were the next family in line to receive a child. A referral is what it's called in the adoption world. A referral, a child, a case file was going to be given to us. We were going to say yes to the first one they handed us. And we were going to travel to Ethiopia and adopt a child. When we got to be number one, not our agency, but the nation of Ethiopia shut down international adoptions. And sadly, they're still closed today. We were number one. For a minister, this is a really big number, although you're very gracious, you take great care of us. But for a minister, Laurel and I lost $30,000 in one day. We had invested that much in a failed adoption. Most of the money had already been sent to Africa, and if you send money there, it will not come back. We were reeling. We trusted the Lord. We weren't angry. We didn't have a crisis of faith. In fact, we had waited so long, we'd had a fifth child. We were like, Lord, what do you want us to do here? 
what is your plan for us? We just felt like there was room for one more child. Then boom. <laughs> Most beautiful Ethiopian little girl. <laughs> not planned, not prayed about. Shock. So much shock, we looked like the 18-year-old couple telling their parents we're pregnant. And every day when I come home from work and she cops an attitude and she has got, well, not Laurel. Had Laurel copped an attitude, she might not be here, but not Laurel. But every time Evie cops an attitude at me and she waddles off, I'm reminded God's plan was not our plan. But I cannot imagine life without her. And when we, when we think about that, it leads to the fourth and final truth. God's plan Always remember this. His plans have a purpose. There's a purpose behind what he does. What is it, Pastor? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you the purpose of God's plan because some of you don't have the happy ending yet. You don't have the picture you can show yet. You're in the middle of having a plan crushed and you've not seen God's plan yet. And I recognize that. Look at the verse that's never read. We always pay attention to Jeremiah 29, 11, and we should, but look at verse 12. For context, let me read 11 again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then, look at verse 12, look at the conditional clause. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. If you've been with me through the series, there have been times where God has told Jeremiah, stop praying for these people. Now he's saying, if you'll hang on, if you'll go through the discipline, if you'll walk through the fire, there's going to come a point where the purging of the pain will create within you a desire for me again. And when you call out with that type of sincerity, I will hear you. And it gets even better. Look what he says. He says in verse 12, I will hear you, verse 13, you will seek me and find me when? When you seek me, with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will, and here comes the most beautiful evangelistic passage in this book, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Here is the purpose of God's plan. He wants your heart. He is a redeemer. The agenda of a redeemer is to draw men and women to himself. Remember what broke his heart? Remember why the deportation happened? Remember why he's still going to destroy Israel because Jerusalem is full of people who wouldn't be deported? They were stiff-necked and rebellious and pushed back. If you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see that sword and famine is still coming to Israel. Why? Is God in the business of annihilation? Does God want to destroy the disobedient? No. God loves a repentant heart. He is merciful and loving and desires for people to turn to him. And that means sometimes he has to crush our plans to remind us that we are tempted to worship our plans more than we are the one who has a plan to redeem the world. And then I'm reminded conversation I had yesterday morning we've been very blessed here at Church at the Mill we've had some elderly 
who, who had other complications and died with COVID, and we don't belittle that. We've been very blessed. This last week, we lost a young man in our church, a 37-year-old husband and father of three who I will bury on Saturday. One of those freakish situations, very sick, and then he developed what they believe was a blood clot, and things just spiraled, and his 35-year-old widow sat right there on the front row of the upper section in the 9 o'clock service with her two children and the third one in the nursery. Pray for her. I was on the phone with her yesterday, and with her permission, I'm sharing this. We were talking about the gospel, and she said, of course, I, this is the hardest thing I've ever faced. But I know my husband, and I know his faith, and I know where he is. And I know that he would say, if God uses his death to bring members of our family who don't know Christ to saving faith, then it would be worth it. Now, I know preachers are supposed to say that. But when a 35-year-old mother of three, even in the midst of her heart reeling, don't, don't for one second think we're immune from the heartbreak and the struggle. When she's recognizing God's got a redemptive plan and even the death of her husband can be used for his glory. It gives purpose to pain. You are not a highly evolved animal with a biological time shelf. You are made in the image of God. And whether you die because you were miscarried moments after you were conceived in the womb of your mother or you die at 105 years old with your family members around you, whether you live 100 seconds or 100 minutes, because of Jesus, there is a way to live forever. And that young man that I bury on Saturday, I will meet him again. I will see him and what he has seen and tasted right now far exceeds anything this old preacher could ever muster up in my limited vocabulary. But I know no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can fathom the greatness of seeing the glory of the sun. And it doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't eliminate the heartbreak. It doesn't mean that the difficult days no longer exist. It just means we put our faith in a God who looked at a people who were itching to get back home, itching to protect their freedom, itching to be well, itching to be in this position, itching for that position, longing for this, longing for that, and he's saying, stop! I know the plans I have for you. I will redeem for myself a people. You can be a part of that. If you will humble yourself, and bring your plans before me and ask me what I will do for your life.